You're tuned in to CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins, and I'm the host of Energy Voices. This month on Energy Voices, we're going to explore a variety of topics, but the backbone of the show will be a long-form discussion with Jim Andres, who's the manager of the Energy Transition Strategy for the City of Edmonton. This ambitious plan is a demonstration of the role that municipalities can play in tackling climate change head-on. We're also going to have a conversation with Soulbird Energy, a startup company based in Alberta that is working on renewable energy projects and energy efficiency projects. They're going to walk us through the incredible Tesla Powerwall that has lit the world on fire lately and is sold out through 2016 to explain why home battery storage is so interesting and all of the different forms of energy storage that are currently possible. We're also going to have Julius Wesch explore another case study on the Danish wind transformation, specifically focusing on wind cooperatives and the role that cooperatives can play in transitioning their energy system to a more sustainable one. Without further ado, here is Jim Andres. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to talk about one of my favorite subjects on Earth, the city of Edmonton, Alberta. I'm joined by Jim Andres, who's leading the energy transition strategy for the city of Edmonton. So first off, welcome to the show, Jim. Hi, Sean. Nice to be here. Yeah. So w- why we wanted to have you on today was to, to really dive into one of the most interesting questions uh, and interesting answers to how do we tackle climate change and how do we tackle sustainability issues globally. Um, if you look at the data, there's actually been a huge amount of progress that's been made uh, by cities. The, the, the municipal governments seem to have an ability to sort of get over uh, bipartisan politics and really just focus on achieving some really specific objectives. And and that's the, the reason we wanted to bring you on was there's been a lot of really interesting dynamics happening in Edmonton around the energy transition strategy, which you're leading. So in order to, to, to bring our listeners up to speed, can you give us sort of two sentences on on, on what the energy transition strategy is in Edmonton. Sure. Uh, Edmonton's community energy transition strategy is, is a risk management strategy. Uh, first and foremost, it's designed to protect the quality of life of Edmontonians from risks that are coming from energy and climate. Okay. And and the, the obvious question that a lot of people will be asking is, Edmonton is a city in the heart of Alberta. Uh, it's a, a services industry. There's huge refining operations here. A lot of people, the the nickname for Edmonton is oil country. Uh, so is this not in opposition to the idea of uh, Edmonton being an oil jurisdiction to sort of focus on climate change and, and sustainability and quality of life? So how, how does that play into the fact of, of working on a transition strategy? Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, if, if you ask the province, if you asked, uh, you know, political leaders at the city of Edmonton about about being an energy city, it would be it would be a broader vision than than just extracting fossil fuels. So so I think I think both of those orders of government aspire to be energy cities and, and recognize that fossil fuels um, have certainly been our bread bread and butter for you know almost uh, you know over over half a century for sure, and we owe a lot to them. But but I think 
most of those uh, those policymakers will also recognize that uh, fossil fuels uh, and and being so dependent on them as we are uh, in Alberta poses a number of risks, and that that it makes a lot of sense for us to be diversifying our energy portfolios and and our economy. Mm-hmm. And and so give us the high level uh, of the objectives of the energy transition strategy. So on, on what timelines are you trying to achieve what objectives? Well, the the probably the global driver behind all of this is is the IPCC and 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 other scientific bodies around the planet that that agree that uh, GHG emissions are are rising to to dangerous levels and and that we have to um, reduce our emissions by 50 to 80 percent and probably closer to the 80 percent by the middle of the century. So that's the scientific backdrop to mm-hmm. uh, to anything that we're doing in Edmonton. Um, our policymakers, like progressive policymakers around the world, say mm-hmm. the science is right, the science is good, we need to act on it. And so we've, we've, we've gone through a process over the last few years to understand what is theoretically possible in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Then we went through a phase where we said, well, what is acceptable to citizens of Edmonton? It may be theoretically possible, but will citizens, do citizens want to go down this low-carbon path? Mm-hmm. And then then the third phase, phase leading to the project was, well, what is economically feasible? Mm-hmm. It may be theoretically, it may have citizen support, but once you crunch the numbers on this and and people's eyes start to open up, they, they might say, ooh, this is not where we want it to go. So so we've, we've done all of that in developing the strategy, and we think that um, meeting all three of those those criteria mm-hmm. are targets, the, the, the targets that we landed on. And the highest level targets are that Edmonton can reduce its GHG emissions in total by 35% by the year 2035. So mm-hmm. 35 by 35, mm-hmm. and that's reduction from 2005 levels. Okay. Um, we've also said we can make enormous gains in energy efficiency, and we've set a target to reduce the amount of uh, energy an average Edmontonian uses by 25%, again, by 2035. Yeah. And then we've also set a, a fairly modest goal, which, uh, which, which certainly can be accelerated, uh, to, to improve the energy resilience of our community so that more of uh, the electricity we use is, is generated close to where it's being used. And so we've set a target that 10% of Edmonton's electricity would be generated within s- city limits mm-hmm. by 2035. And, and that local generation, is that all generation types or is that predominantly solar, renewable? Like is there, is there sort of a focus area for that local generation or is that yeah. sort of up to the citizens and the, the businesses to figure out? Yeah, well, the strategy looks at, sees two opportunities. We see a big opportunity for, for solar PV mm-hmm. and, and we think that a big part of that reduction would come from that. And we also see a big opportunity for combined heat and power and district energy systems that are are being fueled by natural gas, which is uh, cleaner than than the alternative right now coming from the the Alberta power grid. Yeah. And and so first off, kudos. I think those are are incredible and, and sort of they really toe the balance between being uh, aggressive on on actually transitioning our, our energy system um, and also balancing what is economically practi- practical. Um, but how do you take it from this idea of, okay, we want um, 
we want to have 35% less greenhouse gas emissions by 2035. Uh, it's 20 years away. It's not, uh, it's not the longest time horizon in the world when you actually look at it. Um, how do you make such a significant transition in such a short period of time in the grand scheme of things? That, that was the big question in all of this. How, how do we actually get to the target? How can we do real things uh, over, over the next decades to get there that are, that are cost effective? And so we, we did some uh, serious modeling around this to understand the potential effectiveness of different types of programs. Mm-hmm. And we looked at, um, we looked at energy efficiency programs in uh, residential buildings, in large industrial, commercial, institutional buildings. We looked at uh, conservation programs and we modeled them after uh, similar programs that, that were happening around the world. And it's sort of, sort of a generic modeling effort. If, if we applied a model like this to Edmonton to, to try to improve energy efficiency in old building stock or in mm-hmm. old buildings or uh, to to encourage the uptake of renewable energy, um, what would be the, the economics of that? Mm-hmm. What sort of results could we achieve based on the experience of other communities? And so, so we're convinced based on our, our modeling that um, the, the, there's really outstanding economics in energy efficiency programs mm-hmm. for buildings, for industry, for, for large buildings. Uh, there's really good economics around uh, encouraging uptake of solar PV in various situations. Really good um, potential benefit in, in encouraging the electrification of passenger vehicles. So, so we're, we're, we, we have numbers and, and good assumptions behind them, yeah. which say we can get to that, uh, that 35% reduction target. And is the barrier just capital? Like when you mentioned that there's there's great economics, like if you do look into some of the, the retrofits of, of industrial buildings or commercial buildings, there there genuinely does seem to be a positive economic case for making some of those retrofits and efficiency improvements. So so what is the barrier? Is it is it simply capital? Is it policy? Is it incentives? Like what's what's preventing that capital from flowing into those solutions right now? Yeah, I think there's different answers for the for the different types of changes that uh, that that are part of the strategy. But okay. but let, let's say um, you know just the energy efficiency in in, in a residential home or in uh, a commercial building. If it's such a, a brilliant idea, why aren't the owners of those buildings mm-hmm. doing it right now? You know, I, I think I think it's a it's a combination of reasons. But but the most you know the the biggest reason right now is that there isn't a compelling uh, economic business case for, for you or me to go and do significant retrofits in our home. Uh, electricity is cheap. Natural gas is cheap. Mm-hmm. Yes, if I, if, I, if I do those changes, I'll experience a payback of, you know, five or six or seven years. Mm-hmm. But in the scheme of things, it's a hassle. It's a disruption to my life, so I don't do it. Mm-hmm. So that I, I would say that is um, a major issue in terms of industry. The same business cases exist there, but uh, if you're an oil field manufacturing company and you have a certain amount of capital and you can put it into another assembly line to produce more things um, or mm-hmm. drill more holes or go back to the shop and, and put in more insulation, outstanding returns on investment on all of those, but typically yeah. the energy efficiency improvements are going to lose out to another assembly line or another hole in the ground. Yeah. 
And so I wanted to actually go back a little bit to some of the things you said at the start of the the interview around how you sort of did this three-phase aspect of like what is theoretically possible um, all the way through to what is economically practical. And you said that there was a lot of engagement that went on. Can you maybe walk me through uh, how the city of Edmonton is a million plus people? How, how do you get those decisions sort of wrung out of the the population base of a large metropolitan area? Yeah, and I think that's a question that um, I think Western communities are, are grappling with. I mean, that, that yeah. goes right to the heart of democracy is how yeah. do how do you build a decision-making system so, so that it re- you know, fairly reflects the opinions yeah. and the views and the values of, of the population. Yeah. So I'm I'm willing to hazard a guess that they're not the same opinions across the spectrum. There's there's probably a wide range of opinions on what we should do about climate change in, in any city in North America. Yeah, there there's in in fact as as we set out to engage uh, Edmontonians, we we wanted Edmontonians' advice on uh, do you support uh, this community going more aggressively down a low-carbon path, mm-hmm. adopting policies that aren't in place today. And so, so again, how do you talk to 800,000 people? Well, yeah. the day will come with, with social media where you might be able to do that better than today. But, but at this point in time, the way, the way we did it is we had a, a good opportunity to work with uh, an organization out of the U of A uh, called uh, Alberta Climate Dialogue, and Dr. David Kahane heads that organization. Uh, he had some uh, some academic funding for for to, to, to look at serious citizen deli- de- deliberation cool. surrounding climate change. And so, so we were really lucky to tap into that. And, and the first thing that uh, they did it in designing this project and, and trying to get a good representative group of Edmontonians was to sample a statistically valid sample, mm-hmm. you know, 1,500 Edmontonians, asking them questions about their 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 views about uh, about energy, about climate, about the risks that 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 um, they represent for our community. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you, you we got we were able then to determine what is the the distribution of opinions in in our community. And we found that you know a small percentage thought that it was not an issue. A smaller, you know, a small percentage at the other end of the spectrum thought it was a serious issue, um, the most urgent issue. And then you had a lot of people in between. And so it was the bell-shaped curve yeah. that represents Edmonton's points of view. And so that's the group of people that we brought into a, a very, um, you know, extensive citizen deliberation in the middle of the project, six Saturdays, 42 hours. Wow. Then they went away with um, with uh, independent academics and wrote a report for us. And I sat back just sort of wondering what are they actually going to say? <laughs> and what did they come back and say? Well, I, I was surprised. Um, I was surprised that a bell-shaped group of uh, Edmontonians who had spent, you know, six Saturdays studying and learning and discussing and debating and clarifying and questioning and came back and 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 recommended, they recommended, and this was with 92% support of the members, that Edmonton, that the city of Edmonton should should lead the community down the low carbon path. Yeah. They, they, they supported it and they put some qualifiers around it. They said, you know, 
in friendlier terms, they, they said in nice terms, you know, just polite terms, we, we really don't have a lot of confidence in government when it comes to big <laughs> multi-decade programs like this, yeah. spending lots of money. So so we want you to, to take us down this path, but we also want you to be extremely transparent in in this journey mm-hmm. we want you to be be really clear about the the programs that you're bringing forward the costs and benefits of those programs the success of those programs the failures of those programs and we want you to be smart enough to stop doing dumb things as soon as it becomes apparent you're doing something that's dumb yeah and accelerate the stuff that's smart that uh, that, yeah. that will get us to the finish line yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna use that to transition into some of the political um, sort of the political underbelly of any large program like this. So uh, what was the year that the the whole energy transition program first started? City Council approved the way we green. That's the highest level environmental strategic plan in in July 2011. And that had that aspirational goal to move towards being a carbon neutral city. Okay. And so that would have been under the previous mayor, Stephen Mandel, correct? The, correct. the way we green. Correct. And so now that we're under uh, a new mayor in Don Iveson, how how does a program like this, um, what changes when a program like this undergoes an administration change? Did you find that there was a major impact? Was it a minor impact? Just give us a sense of how do projects like this um, change, if at all, during a major administration change? Well, you know, I don't know if so much, of course, administrations across Canada, you look at any point in time mm-hmm. in big cities and you look at the administrations and they'll be different and some will be more, you know, it, it, they will have different sets of priorities. And so so absolutely, as administrations change, priorities can change. Um, but I think equally on, on, the, on the subject of climate change, and 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 energy transition and all and the whole bag of issues around it. I think as time passes and, it, and it's really accelerating, you know, from year to year, almost from month to month, there there seems to be a, an awakening, mm-hmm. uh, a, a general acceptance of of the science, the urgency of the issue, and the need to move. So so is there a difference between this? Uh, council in the last council, yes, mm-hmm. and um, and and I think large a, a big part of that is 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 the passage of time mm-hmm. and and just sort of that that learning that's going on in every council in the country, and then then of course um, you know Mayor Iveson um, certainly came as as a very strong advocate and and so so a number of other councillors and and I would say right now that uh, you know the majority of of well, certainly all of council supported the strategy. They, they mm-hmm. endorsed it. They agree in principle with it. Where there are differences, I would say they, they are relatively minor on a, on a tactical level. Mm-hmm. But I think everyone is saying, yeah, let's, let's um, not only move towards those targets, but let's, uh, let's speed it up and, and, and uh, maybe even be more aggressive in getting to that target before 2035. Yeah. Which is amazing to hear. Yeah. yeah. And and so what's next? So uh, where are we at? In, in total, give us a, a, a sense of where we're at in time with the energy transition strategy. Um, what's the next steps? And, and how does this sort of uh, go from sort of writing on paper to active projects in the real world? Right. The... Um when, when we drafted the strategy, we wanted it to be action oriented. So, um, so most of it, probably, you know, seventy five percent of the, the the short document, uh, you know, it's fifty pages long, but you know, most of it is is an action plan, very specific, 
tactics that uh, we've vetted with with stakeholders and with the community, and we have the green light to run on them. So when council endorsed the strategy on April 30th, um, they gave us the green light to start moving on 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 these items. So 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 to the extent that we can with our budget, we're. We're, we're, we're moving forward with another a number of really interesting rubber hitting the road projects. But at the same time, we we recognize that energy transition is a multi-decade effort, yeah. and we need to have the right machinery in place, organizationally, a governance structure that that will give status to this. So so we're really busy uh, as well putting together uh, a governance structure. Uh, recommending back to city council later this summer um, a committee structure that would be either a committee of city council or a uh, an administrative committee reporting to the city manager with with lots of clout to oversee the uh, the implementation of this strategy um, and and also there there are some funding gaps. Yeah. There there is no way that we can achieve our goals. And council was is is very clear on this as well. Understand it totally that without without large scale community programs mm-hmm. that that are going to achieve our energy efficiency goals. Large scale community programs around energy efficiency in homes, mm-hmm. large buildings, in industry solar PV uptake, uh, other renewable energy uptake. Yeah. Th- that we've got to, and, and, and that is going to take significant dollars. Uh, council is aware of that. So, so we're in the process right now of developing our 2016 to 18 operating budget to reflect those financial realities. And at the same time, um, the, the serious dollars aren't going to be needed until 2018. And between now and then, we, we see an enormous need to be working with the province mm-hmm. to, to well, come up with what we call a province-wide approach to this. Mm-hmm. Um, we, think, we think it absolutely is a superior strategy for, for not just Edmonton to be doing the things that we're anticipating, but for the region and for Red Deer and Medicine Hat and Calgary. And, and, and so, so to mm-hmm. the extent that it makes sense for Edmonton, we think it makes sense for the province. And we're going to be taking the lead with all of those parties and, and in particular, the provincial government to say over the next two years, can we work together to understand what those community scale programs would look like? And to the extent possible, let's roll them out across the province. Mm -hmm. Well, as someone who's born and raised in Alberta, I don't think there's ever been a more exciting time in the world of energy and climate and sustainability in this province, just with the, the work that's been going on for a number of years now with CCMC, some of the work that's been going on in Calgary, this transition strategy, as well as the new NDP government. I just feel like all levels of, of government and leadership in this province are, are really making actual strides towards um, putting us on the map as a leader around energy and climate. And so uh, I just want to applaud you, you for your work. Um, is is there a sense uh, from y- yourself personally, is, is this exciting that you're finally getting to the point of action on some of these projects that you've got approval through council and you're putting together the budgets? Uh, what has this meant for Jim Andres as the person, not the, the representative of the city? Yeah, yeah. This this is, for me, it, it's super exciting. Again, I, I've been in municipal government in, you know, I've been lucky to have some really interesting jobs, different jobs over 30 years. And, mm-hmm. and I, I would say that uh, 
this is about as, as much fun as it gets. I mean, you, it's, it's a constant process of, of learning. It's a constant process of meeting some of the most inspired and fascinating people in our community and other communities. It's, uh, it's an issue that, that, you know, in, in my heart, I, I think is, uh, um, you know, it, it's, it's in the top two or three challenges that society uh, is, is faced with. So to be part of a solution and, and part of a community effort is really, uh, you know, a wonderful place to be. Do you feel like you have the best job in Edmonton? Yeah, you know, but I, I've thought that with my other jobs too. But but now, yeah, I, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's really astounding. You know, I, I pinch myself thinking I'm yeah. very lucky. Yeah, well, you've garnered a lot of respect in the Edmonton community for your ability to sort of to, to be willing to run the marathon because you've mentioned a couple times that this is a multi-decade uh, transition and, and that does require a lot of sort of patience and, and stability and, and endurance. And so um, that, that's it for the questions that we have here for you today. But I just want to extend a big thank you. Uh, it's, it makes me really proud as an Edmontonian to see the work that's being done here. Uh, we're an organization that works all over the world. We've got events on, done events on every continent. And, and when you see the type of work that's being done here in your hometown, it certainly makes you proud. So uh, congratulations on all the great work with the strategy. Well, thank you, Sean, for those kind words. And I'll take them back to City Council because it's our City Council that deserves the credit for this. Yeah. And so for anyone that was interested in learning a bit more about the the energy transition strategy, what's the easiest place for them to find out information? The the easiest place is just go to our website and uh, edmonton.ca slash energy transition. You'll see you'll see the strategy and you see a long version of the strategy. You'll you'll see all sorts of supporting information that's led to that. And you'll you'll be able to to contact uh, me or, you know, folks in 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 our office uh, directly. So um, that would be the place to go. Perfect. Thanks so much, Jim. For our next interview, I want to take a quick intermission to introduce our listeners to one of the most exciting programs Student Energy has ever launched. On Monday, we released our brand new energy literacy platform at studentenergy.org. This project has been almost two years in the making and was designed to be a brand new tool for anyone looking to learn about the energy system for the very first time. This platform has an incredible array of content that is curated by hundreds and hundreds of students and academic experts from around the world. The purpose was to be that entry point for anyone who wants to understand the complexities of the world of energy in a very simple and beautiful and digestible format. We've got dozens of beautifully designed animated videos to explain complex topics in energy. We also have an interactive systems map that will allow you to go from the top level production aspects of the energy industry all the way through to the end uses of energy. One thing that I found fascinating when we first did this story and worked on this project was the fact that at the end of the day, the entirety of our energy system is designed to provide a few very simple and very basic objectives. We want electricity, we want heat, we want cooling, we want products, and we want transportation. And there's very few other things that our entire multi-trillion dollar energy system is designed towards. So again, please visit studentenergy.org and learn about the energy system from the ground up.
So next up on Energy Voices, we're going to tackle a really topical issue, which is related to batteries. Uh, as anyone with a social media account will know, Tesla recently introduced the Powerwall, uh, their play at a home battery storage device. Um, it's really sort of taken the, the energy world by storm. And I think I had six or seven friends who know nothing about energy that messaged me on Facebook asking me what my thoughts were on the Powerwall. And so we wanted to take advantage of this, uh, this sort of resurgence of interest in uh, the Powerwall and the Tesla battery to bring in some experts who are working around renewable energy and energy storage. So uh, to really give our listeners an understanding of what is happening with uh, the Tesla Powerwall, is it revolutionary? Why is it sold out until 2016? And really giving a deep dive into why there is this sudden and extreme interest in the world of home battery storage. So uh, I'm really excited to welcome uh, Matt and Kia from Soulbird Energy onto the show who, who are working in this space in Edmonton, Alberta, um, and have a really deep understanding of all kinds of aspects of renewable energy and alternative energy generation. Um, so without further ado, welcome to the show, Matt and Kia. Hi. Hey. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to start off, uh, Matt? Maybe you go first as far as just give us who are who you are, where you work, and what your role with the company is. Yeah. Sure. Uh, thanks for having us here. Uh, my name is Matt Samard. I'm a co-owner of Soulbird Energy, a startup company. We're about uh, a year in now, so pretty new. But we deal with renewable energy and energy efficiency. My background is uh, alternative energy technologist and a uh, journeyman electrician out of Nate here in Alberta. Awesome. And Kia? Hi, um, I'm Kia Adachi. I'm also a graduate from the Nate Alternative Energy Technology Program, and I work at Solbird as the kind of the project coordinator and lead researcher on design work and different systems. Okay, awesome. Well, welcome to the show, guys. Thank Thanks. you. Okay, well, let's let's kick this thing off. Uh, what is electricity storage and, and why is it so important? So, Matt, maybe kick us off with the, the high-level overview. Sure, yeah. Um, electricity storage is extremely important, especially in the renewable energy industry. Um, the problem is, is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, technologies like solar or wind uh, they're non-dispatchable, which means that you can't control when they're going to be generating. They generate when the you know when the sun's out or there's wind blowing. Um, so in order to go to completely to renewables, you've got to have some kind of uh, storage medium where you can um, oversize your systems to generate during the day, um, and then during the night when they're not operating or the wind's not blowing, um, they can that stored energy can now come out and continue to feed our homes and you know run all our electrical appliances and whatnot. Yeah. And so you mentioned oversizing the system what does that mean oversizing a system uh, that would mean that the uh, so like your solar systems or your uh, your wind systems would be sized large enough that during the day they could handle all of the load when they're operating um, but then at night uh, or while they're operating they could still charge your battery so at night you could pull that energy off the grid or off the batteries and feed the grid continuously okay awesome uh, and so in electricity storage, there's a number of technologies that are there. Uh, it's not just sort of a single battery type. And so uh, we did this on a previous show where we had, um, we did a 60 second blitz on nuclear technology. And uh, I really like the segment. So I'm going to bring it back and put you very much on the spot here, Matt. All right. um, so I'm going to actually legitimately pull out a timer. And I want you to give us at most 60 seconds of an overview on a few different sorts of energy storage technologies. So let me know when you're ready. All right, I'm ready. Okay, 60 seconds on batteries. Sure. Uh, so batteries are the most common uh, uh, method of energy storage right now, especially for a small scale. Um, that's because they're the, the most cost effective, the most commonly used, and there's many different types. There's flood batteries, there's uh, like AGMs, there's uh, uh, lithium ion, which is what's in the Tesla battery, and uh, they all have their benefits and uh, compared to the other ones, and they also have a lot of uh, 
problems compared to other ones too. So um, some cost more money. Uh, lithium ions, for instance, cost a lot of money, but you're actually going to get a better payback out of them over their lifetime. Um, and then there's the things like AGMs, which is um, kind of like a mid-range um, between lithium ions and uh, and flooded batteries. Um, and it really depends on uh, what the application you're using them for is and, uh, you know, what your price range is. Okay. That was 46 seconds, so you're doing good okay, so far. Okay, um, All right. The, the next uh, category is, is one that I don't think as many people have heard of, which is compressed air energy storage. So give us 60 seconds or less on compressed air energy storage whenever you're ready. All right. Uh, so compressed air energy storage is, uh, is a pretty basic concept. Um, you're basically taking... Uh, uh, electricity, putting that into a compressor and uh, compressing air energy into a cavern or a, or a cylinder of some type. Um, generally, they're using salt caverns for large scale. Um, for small scale, it's as simple as a, a compressor that you use at home. So there's a lot of different variations of uh, compressed air energy storage. Um, some people are just simply uh, compressing the air and you're getting not great efficiencies, but when you're using renewable energy, it doesn't matter that much because your, uh, your fuel is free, basically. Um, but there's new ones coming out now where they're actually recapturing a lot of the heat. So when you compress um, an air or a liquid, there's going to be heat generated. So they're, they're recapturing that heat and using it for something else, putting it through a turbine or whatnot. And they're getting efficiency up to like 70% or more. Um, and then there's people that are uh, just basically taking uh, giant uh, cylinders and uh, compressing them um, using direct uh, direct mechanical injury from wind turbines. So rather than having a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, conversions between electricity and mechanical power. They're just going straight mechanical and getting their efficiency a lot higher. It really <laughs> depends on your application and uh, what your budget is. Awesome. That's great. I actually didn't know that about the direct uh, wind capture into mechanical energy. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, conversion better. Yeah. And so the, the it's semi-related, but the, the next one we're going to tackle is underwater storage. So give me 60 seconds or less on underwater storage. Sure. So, uh, Underwater storage is uh, basically the same as compressed air energy, except for now instead of having a cavern or a, uh, a cylinder of types, you can uh, you're basically filling up a bladder underwater or uh, some it's almost like a b giant balloon, and you're using the pressure of the water to uh, to release that uh, that pressure when you're when you're ready to generate. So so you pump the uh, Pump the uh, compressed air down into the balloon, and when you're ready to to generate, you're releasing that pressure, and it's spinning a turbine and uh, get electricity. Straightforward. You bet. Um, okay, and we're gonna finish off the the last of this segment is uh, on the largest form of energy storage to date, uh, pumped hydro. So give us 60 seconds or less on what pumped hydro means. Sure. Uh, so pumped hydro is uh, you're taking two big uh, Reservoirs. reservoirs of water and you're uh, you're starting out with the water in the lower reservoir you're using uh, excess energy generated to pump uh, pump the water up into the top reservoir and uh, when you're ready to generate electricity you just release the water in the top reservoir it's going to come down a hill into the bottom and uh, spin a turbine mm -hmm. and uh, yeah it's a it's large scale it doesn't really make sense on small scale um, there's some really big applications that work really well right now around the world but mm -hmm. yeah. we have uh, we have Isaac Newton and his theory of gravity to thank for pumped hydro. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to sort of switch gears a little bit and talk. Um, you sort of finished that last segment on pumped hydro, talking about that it's got some, it works at a large scale, but not necessarily at a small scale. So when people hear the word electricity storage, what are some of the differences between that utility scale and, and the micro scale? So I don't know if you have some thoughts on that, Kia, or if you want to dive in, Matt. 
Well, I think battery storage for um, kind of like a home use system is the most common. I mean, you can't exactly have your own pumped hydro system in your condo because that's not really going to work so well. <laughs> Same works for um, uh, flywheels. Uh, the, having that kind of living load in a building with a lot of people has some potentials for danger, but they're the technology is advancing. So I do believe in California, they have a pretty large scale fly wheel system that's kind of outside of city city limits. So if anything were to happen, then it's uh, it's a little more contained. Cool. And and give us, for people that don't know what a flywheel technology is, give us, this is your <laughs> 30 seconds on what a flywheel is. Uh, all right. Uh, so a flywheel is, uh, is uh, basically a, a big spinning disc, and uh, what you're doing is you're getting this uh, this mass spinning extremely fast, up to I believe they're up to 100,000 RPM now, and some of the ones that aren't uh, being installed yet are getting up to 200,000 RPM, so extremely quick. Um, and the idea is that you keep this uh, once you get this spinning, it takes a small amount of energy to keep it going. Generally, they'll have a magnetic bearing system, and they'll have it in a, in a vacuum, so that once you get this spinning, the it just takes a little little bit of energy every once in a while to keep it going. And when you need that energy, um, like say your grid goes down, um, it just basically switches into a generator. So now this giant mass, the force is spinning a generator and uh, giving you electricity. It's a, it's the world's most advanced merry-go-round. Basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you want to go really fast. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, and so we, we started off the segment talking a little bit about the Tesla battery and the power wall. Um, I was hoping you guys could maybe dissect that for us a little bit. Uh, just it's it's really the first thing that has caught mass media attention. Um, as I mentioned, there's been dozens and dozens of articles about it. Um, it's uh, rumored that it sold out through the end of 2016, uh, which is fascinating for a, a piece of energy technology to be sold out that far in advance. Um, so can you guys give us a sense of, of, of what is the Tesla battery? What is its optimal use cases? Uh, give us a bit of the what's under the hood of the Tesla Powerwall. Sure. So uh, the Tesla Powerwall is... Uh more or less taking the same technology they've put in their electric cars, a lithium-ion battery pack, except for now they've made it so you can now install it on your wall. Um, it comes in two different models, a 7 kilowatt and a 10 kilowatt. Uh, the 7 kilowatt is designed for daily use, so that would be like somebody, if you want to go like off-grid, you could use the 7 kilowatt. And the 10 kilowatt is used for uh, energy backup, so it's not used, it shouldn't be discharged all the time, it's used to be discharged about like 50 times a year. Um, so there's some benefits and po- there's, I mean the the price point that they're that they're showing is uh, is definitely a positive, but there is once you break it down a little bit further, um, there is some negative uh, or some dis- disadvantages to the uh, the Tesla battery. Uh, one is that uh, it's got a really low uh, output current. So um, when you look at their stats, it says about 5.6 amps at think like 350 volts so once you invert that into something you can use in your house you're getting an average of about 15 amps continuously out of this thing so I mean that's enough to run your like uh, your hair dryer or a microwave but not cook dinner (laughs) yeah exactly so like if you're if you're living in uh, if you have an electric stove you're gonna need quite a few of these to run that electric stove you need a couple of them hooked hooked up the price point is is uh, very competitive though and that's what I think gets the most hype Compared to it's per kilowatt hour, it's comparable to what uh, we sell a lot of our AGM batteries for, mm-hmm. which is uh, um, a lesser battery. Per, I wouldn't say lesser, I guess. It just doesn't have as long of a life mm-hmm. as uh, as uh, the lithium ions. But there's a lot more you can do with it. So you can get a lot more output out of it. You can kind of play with it a little bit. Uh, the problem I see with the Tesla is that you know you only have the 15 amp output. Uh, 
and uh, you can't really uh, vary it at all, right? If we mm-hmm. if we decide to or if we design a uh, AGM battery system for a client, we can decide how much its max output is and everything like that. So. Um, Mm-hmm. There are some issues. I mean, there is some po- the other positives of the Tesla is uh, it's 220 pounds. That's unheard of. Like for that's great for your lithium ion. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you get the same thing in AGM, you're looking at like about a thousand pounds or more. So. And what's what's the primary difference there? Is that just the the, the medium itself that the batteries have to be? Why why is there sort of an, a literal 800 pound gorilla difference of the difference <laughs> in the batteries? Um, it's just yeah. It's uh, it has to do with just uh, higher. Uh, energy density with lithium ions so you don't have to have as much to uh, store as much energy so and that's the biggest thing about lithium ions uh, is just that they they are extremely light Mm -hmm. and uh, and some other things you can mount them on a wall whereas like uh, AGMs it's a little bit trickier they want to be you know they don't want to be or a lot of batteries don't want to uh, to be laid on their side they're not they won't operate that way so Mm -hmm. with a a lithium ion you can put it on its side you can put it on its back it doesn't matter right it's just it's a solid state battery Mm -hmm. awesome Um, and, and who else is, is in this space? Uh, Tesla's obviously not probably the first or the last company to, to be working on, on battery technologies and sort of home-based battery technology. So what else is out there and what else can people be, be paying attention to in this space? Um, I mean, I would, I would just pay attention to lithium-ion batteries in general. Um, it's, if you don't go with the Tesla battery and you were to come to like us and you went with lithium ions, we could actually decide or decide on how big of a system you need and uh, custom build your lithium ion battery as well. They're a little bit trickier because they need a, a battery management system that's uh, um, you know takes some designing, some engineering. So the price is a little bit a little bit higher, but like I said, at least mm-hmm. with uh, with a custom made system, you can uh, you can vary how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can still make macaroni and cheese on the stove. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's very important. <laughs> yeah. The technology that goes into making a lithium-ion battery is a little more in-depth than just an AGM or like your traditional lead-acid battery. They require temperature sensors and like computer chips and things in them mm-hmm. to keep them functioning properly because um, mm-hmm. they don't like to get too hot or too cold. Mm-hmm. And an interesting uh, uh, point is that the uh, the 10 kilowatt and the 7 kilowatt Tesla batteries aren't actually using the same technology either. Hmm. The 10 kilowatt is using almost exactly the same technology as the Tesla cars, but the 7 kilowatt is using the technology that uh, the lithium-ion technology that the uh, the Nissan Leaf uses, I believe. So hmm. it's uh, it's kind of interesting. So they're kind of varying away from their own technology and adopting some new ones. Mm-hmm. And and is that you were mentioning that the 7 kilowatt one is sort of for daily use and daily dispatch? Is uh, we might dive into some of the technical aspects but but what what makes a battery sort of more adapted to daily dispatch versus sort of you mentioned sort of maybe a third of the year or, or quarter of the year being able to dispatch uh yeah so with any battery um there's a relationship between the des- depth of discharge so that's how far you're going down with its energy energy uh, capacity mm-hmm. um and how much you're discharging at one time and uh just like the the total size of the battery so um if you discharge a battery that's a really big battery, like really quickly, you're going to get like you know like half of its its rated output. Mm-hmm. But if you discharge it slowly, it's going to last a lot longer. Um, the depth of discharge matters a lot with a lot of batteries. Uh, with AGMs, for instance, you don't want to go below 60%, or else you're going to really shorten the lifetime of a battery mm-hmm. of their batteries. But uh, with a lithium ion, you can go down to like 70 to 90% without doing a lot of damage to it. So, mm-hmm. um, and that's the biggest difference between the the daily use and the and the and the uh, the 10 kilowatt that's used for to discharge 50 times a year is that the 10 kilowatt is almost is most likely going to be about the same size as the 7 kilowatt, 
um, except for the seven kilowatts not going to go down that far it's mm-hmm. going down 70% most likely so um, <laughs> that's why they're, they're practically the same size too yeah interesting that's really interesting um, and so we mentioned the the flywheel technology as sort of this newer technology that's developing. Is there anything else that's out there that you think people should be aware of as sort of really interesting either home applications or for people that are looking at their own renewable energy systems? Um, what do you think people should be paying attention to these days? Uh, I mean, when it comes down to homes right now, the, the best one still is batteries. Like lithium yeah. ions are a big one. Um, even like fuel cells could be a could be a game changer here soon. It's taken a little while to get off the ground, and there's been a lot of hype about fuel cells that seems to t- seems to take off for a while, and then it dies down just for because they run into issues. But yeah, or, or flow batteries. So you have two uh, two mediums that are basically flowing through a membrane and uh, exchanging or in, doing the same process as a battery, giving you electricity, and then you just reverse the process to recharge it. Mm-hmm. So you put electricity into it, and it basically recharges the whole thing or you can just change out the actual electrolyte inside of it and have a a fully charged battery right away but um so i would say yeah flow batteries uh fuel cells and lithium ions so um the the other interesting thing about lithium ions i guess is that they uh they can charge to 100 percent extremely quickly whereas like normal batteries they can charge to 80 percent extremely quick quickly and then you have to trickle charge them the rest of the way so it Mm -hmm. takes a while whereas lithium ions you can charge to 100 percent extremely quick and Mm -hmm. it's there's no losses and is is that the the technology behind the tesla supercharger for for the vehicles where they have i think it's a 15 or 20 minute recharge that you can do yeah so i mean the the technology that tesla uses is basically just a bunch of really small batteries instead of a uh, instead of a giant battery um and uh, that makes it so you can charge it a lot quicker. Like if you can, because you're charging a hundred or a thousand mini batteries at once. Yeah, as exactly. To one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's and really they've got and they've got some really cool uh, like liquid cooling uh, technology, which they also use on this these Tesla wall packs, which makes it so they don't overheat really quick. Mm-hmm. You can charge them that quick, and you know, and disperse the heat. Because there's going to be heat generated every time you use a battery or charge a battery up. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a it's a it's a combination of a lot of uh, technologies Tesla's using. Yeah, I've, I've always said that sort of the past year for, of my life, I've become really fascinated by electricity. It's this thing, <laughs> uh, born and raised in North America, you you don't know what it's like to turn on a light switch and not have there be 100.0% efficiency and uptime of our grid. <laughs> but when you actually dive under the hood a little bit, there's it's this fascinating world of technology and, and the, the challenges that we're overcoming now, I think are really staggering and, and are going to lead to sort of the baseline of a transition to a renewable energy powered grid because of all these sorts of incremental advances. So it's just, it's fascinating the work that you guys are doing and trying to sort of extend that. Um, And so I I wanna uh, sort of ask that question now. So uh, as people who are working in this space, give us a bit more background on on what does Soulbird do and, and sort of what inspired you guys to start this business? Sure. So, uh, yeah, Swilbird, what we focus on is uh, consulting for energy efficiency, renewable energy projects. Um, and we, uh, the reason we started Swilbird was we were working in uh, the solar industry. We're all alternative energy technologists. We were already interested in this in this sort of thing. But um, we realized that there wasn't really just one technology that, that fit a project. Mm-hmm. So rather than going to a site and just, uh, you know, they want to go net zero and you give them a big solar array, um, that wasn't really what that's not always the most cost-effective way to uh, to approach it, right? Mm-hmm. Energy efficiency is one of the most important uh, factors if you want to if you want to have a sustainable community. And uh, energy efficiency upgrades are generally one third the the price of renewable energy per watt saved. So, <laughs> and that's the reason why Solbert Energy was uh, was born was because we had the we had the. Uh, the the training to do all these different renewable energy types like solar, wind, hydro, uh, geothermal, and 
and I had, I'm an electrician, so I had the background to work in uh, the background in energy efficiency mm-hmm. and uh, you know complex controls and things like that. So we decided to marry the two and uh, and try to make the biggest the biggest difference we could for uh, and make the most economic sense. Yeah. And and what has been your guys' favorite project to date? Is there a flagship project that you you look at as being Soulbird's defining project so far? Oh goodness, um, there are so many different projects that have so many different aspects that we took major learning curves to get to. <laughs> um, I think right now, one of my favorite projects is one that we can't really talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we can blank out the names. We can blank yeah. out the names. Yeah. Okay, well, the Just Tom give us the general... project okay. is really interesting because it is, uh, what is it, five acres outside of the city? Yeah. And we're um, creating a huge, massive solar system, a solar array to go over top of kind of like a seating area sunroom that's okay. also going to power a... Uh, a house, a guest house, a garage, and a bunch of pathway lightings through the, the property. Cool. But it keeps changing and there's more iterations. But we're also working with another company to do um, permaculture and uh, aquaculture and kind of integrate all these other kind of like living areas yeah. of his of his homestead into the solar array. So it's pretty yeah. neat. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that the closed loop cycle of using... Uh, renewable energy to generate food is just such a fascinating concept. Oh, absolutely. Sort of, it's the ultimate net zero lifestyle if you can afford the upfront cost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just like uh, like total integration on such a like a high-end property like that, right? Like a lot of people don't think it's it makes economic sense, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, once this project's done, we're going to be able to prove that it does. It does make a lot of sense and especially if you can do everything together like what Solberg does, it makes a lot of sense because you just save a lot of you save a lot of cost by integrating everything properly mm-hmm. and hybridizing everything properly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's it for the questions that I had for you guys today. Okay. Uh, I really appreciate you guys taking the time and 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 just really appreciate that there's mm-hmm. people like yourselves that are out there fighting the good fight on uh, building successful businesses around renewable and sustainable energy and energy efficiency. So uh, if people want to learn more about Soulbird, what's the best place to go? Uh, our website. So it's uh, www.solbirdenergy.com. <laughs> so Soulbird Energy, yeah. Soul, S-O-L? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some people get that confused. So I just spell it over people. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks so much for your time, guys. And we hope to have you back on a future show. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. The next interview on Energy Voices is a snippet of an interview done by Julius Wesch as part two of his series on the Danish wind transformation. Hello, everybody out there. Um, I'm sitting here in the office of um, Eric Christiansen. This is in Copenhagen. And Eric is the chair of the Middlegrunden Cooperative, and they built a big wind farm here in Denmark, which is which you can see right from the harbor. So it's very great to have you on the show, Eric. Um, yeah. Would you please introduce yourself a little bit further than I did? What we try to do is to, to uh, expand uh, the, the thinking of cooperatives in Denmark, and luckily, we uh, we have a tradition in Denmark where we have a lot of cooperatives dealing mm. with energy utilities or energy supply or production or something like that. Some of our listeners might not really know what a cooperative is, so would you mind ha- uh, introducing the concept of a cooperative to our uh, listeners? Well, well, all members of a cooperative, they are equal. They vote in the same way. They, they have a, an 
a vote when they go to the annual general meeting. They can decide what to do, what we should do in the cooperative. Uh, they, they are the supreme uh, uh, level of a cooperative. And I think that's very important uh, to, to have in focus that this, when you are working as a board member for a cooperative, you're always working for the benefit of the members of the cooperative. Um, and we uh, have a very good tradition in Denmark for cooperatives because uh, people trust the cooperative. You know, we have had no court cases concerning criminality or something like that, you know, bribery or something like that when it comes to cooperatives. And I think it has to do with the Danish way of thinking that if your neighbor is involved, you can trust what is going on. So, so you know, it's a, a trust system which has been there for many, many years. That sounds really interesting. Well, Middle Grunen has has built up uh, some 17 years ago. Yeah, yeah, well, we, we established the, the, the cooperative in 1997, yeah. and uh, we started the wind turbines in 2001. So 13 years that the turbines are working. What yeah. were the challenges in the beginning um, that yeah of making up this project? Well, it was to convince the local utility that we should erect uh, the wind turbines. Uh, they, the technicians said, this is impossible. This is something totally crazy to establish an offshore wind farm in front of our capital and in front of so many people. This will never happen. And when the, we finalized the meeting with the utility, we agreed, okay, we have to handle it in a political way. So we went to the mayor of environment in Copenhagen and he said, this is a wonderful idea. So everything changed after that and he supported this, uh, you know, the project from the very beginning. And uh, the minister of energy and climate at that time, he uh, supported the, the project too. He was very keen on showing how uh, the wind turbines could be erected in, in, a, in, a, in a short distance from a city. So, you know, the politicians, they played an important role. Uh, and it's something silly. You have always an opposition from technicians. I can speak like this because I'm a lawyer. But, but you have all the, always thousands of uh, objections from technicians. And sometimes you have to say, no, uh, this will happen. We have to do in this direction and it will happen. If people want something to happen, it will happen. We have seen that everywhere uh, in, on earth. Uh, for many years, so 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 that's how it is. Was it easy to find the people to build up the cooperative? So, and how many members have you got? When we had the final negotiations, well, I have to say that um, uh, there were no there was no legislation concerning offshore wind uh, at that time. So, uh, when we had the project, the ministry they followed the project and they made the legislation. Uh, according to the experiences we had in the process and planning process and the, in the erection process and afterwards. So we actually influenced the legislation. Um, after um, two years from the very start of the cooperative, we started uh, marketing. No, it was one year. We started marketing in 1998. We marketed uh, the project and we had some very good... Um, Uh, commercials, uh, and it was not paid by the cooperative, it was the, the local television uh, having 
in the prime time they broadcasted families saying that they were shareholders of, of something wonderful which was going on in Copenhagen. And now the family with two kids and uh, parents, they were going to be CO2 neutral because they wanted to buy shares uh, from the local uh, wind cooperative. So, you know, we had this uh, common feeling that uh, some somebody, the television the journalists and so on, they supported the project. So, you know, it was like a wave going through Copenhagen to, to, to try to influence uh, the establishment uh, of the wind turbines. And uh, we had some very good uh, actors from the Royal Theatre helping us to promote uh, the wind uh, uh, project. And uh, we had some uh, uh, filmmakers uh, promoting uh, our project too. So, so a lot of people helped us. And after one and a half years, we sold. We had sold all the shares. It was forty thousand five hundred shares, and it was sold to eight thousand seven hundred citizens in Copenhagen. That's great. But so that was probably the first wind farm um, that was erected by in, in cooperative yeah. here in Denmark. How many has yeah, have offshore wind offshore wind farm? Yeah, yeah. How many have followed? Well, are there well, others? Yeah, uh, I've been involved in those uh, that are here, <laughs> and it was in uh, Samsø, south of Samsø, the island Samsø, which is a uh, renewable island, what they call, it. and uh, they erected ten wind turbines south of Samsø, and uh, they are producing electricity to be self-sufficient and to uh, produce electricity for the 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 energy consumption of the ferries going to, to the islands. Uh, the next project is this Vidor uh, uh, Wind Cooperative project, uh, which was established just before the UN summit in 2009. And uh, actually we are going to have a fourth one uh, in front of Aarhus. And uh, I'm the legal, I'm member of the cooperative and I'm a legal consultant. Uh, for the project, both to the utilities, to the city of Aarhus, and, and to the corporate Before we close the show, I would also like to take a second to remind all of our listeners about the upcoming International Student Energy Summit that Student Energy will be hosting on June 10th through 13th. This event is being hosted in Bali, Indonesia, and to date we have students from 87 countries that are registered to attend. If you or someone you know is a post-secondary student that is passionate about the world of energy, I strongly encourage you to visit www.ises2015.com. Again, please visit the International Student Energy Summit website to learn more about how you can participate in one of the world's largest gatherings of post-secondary students who are passionate about transitioning to a sustainable energy future. That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai Sinclair. Energy Voices is supported by Bullfrog Power, and you can go to bullfrogpower.ca slash studentlife to learn more about the opportunities they provide for post-secondary students to green their power consumption. You can learn more about student energy and our new energy literacy platform at studentenergy.org. And you can download all previous episodes of our podcast by searching Energy Voices in iTunes or your favorite podcast service.